everybody welcome to the voxology podcast mike and tim here we're glad that you're with us today um we are delighted in fact to be a small part of your life and so uh, we're going to continue on in a series of conversations that we've been having around um a different way to sort of narrate the biblical story beyond the uh, i accept jesus into my heart and am forgiven story that many of us were handed uh, before we get there, though, we have, not surprisingly, some thoughts from our incredibly intelligent <laughs> audience about missions, which we spent some time on reflecting on. Uh, Tim had made a comment. We got some responses. We added comments, and we got some more responses. <laughs> and that's, like, I'm getting lots of responses on comments. I think I should also clear the air on the um, dead ringer, since we got so much pushback on that. Yeah, yeah, why don't you start there? <laughs> so, we shared strange facts. That wasn't the strange fact, but that was like a side fact that I shared, like the etymology. Is that how you say it? Or did I just make that word up? What, Where that phrase came from, being the people eating on lead plates and being buried alive, but it turns out it's really just about horses. <laughs> and many people were eager to write in and let me know that I had messed that one up. The real yeah. version is boring, more boring than the version that I told. So I'm just going to stick with what I have. Well, not only that, but what was the song lyric or the song that you messed up? I mean, people are watching <laughs> you like a hawk, man. Yeah, was, what was it? That is funny, the things that I get pushed back on. Yeah, well. Woody Guthrie. Yeah, that's what it was. Absolutely. You know, there was a, a phrase this weekend that I thought of. It was the hair of the dog. You know, like when you've had a night drinking and they say you needed the hair of the dog in the morning to kind of get your day going again. And the origins of that were like when people would get bit by dogs with rabies, they would take the hair of the dog and put it in the bite to try to heal the wound. And it was like a way of taking the thing that hurts you is the thing that will help you. So the hair of the dog in the morning is like if you had too much to drink the night before, you have a little bit of what hurts you to help mm, cure you. Got it. Nice. Well, we'll see if that one stands the test of our community. We, we're not sure. <laughs> but we did get some, some comments, uh, very thoughtful comments on our comments. And so, Tim, go ahead. Fire up right. the uh, email app. <clears throat> Hello to all. When I was in my late teens, I went on summer missions summer mission trips to Costa Rica and India, then later a winter trip to Mexico. All of these trips were construction type projects, a dining hall at a Christian camp, an orphanage, repairing the uh, a church roof, and we had to raise our own support. Now that I am much older and hopefully wiser, I realize that it would have been best to hire local workers for these projects, adding to their economic well-being, but those trips had an incredible impact on me. I got to see the church in a non-USA setting, how people live in other parts of the world. It was like one person went on the first trip and a different person came back. How could that have happened otherwise? <clears throat> I replied on a Twitter post saying something to the effect that I can't change what I did in the past, but it really changed my life. Um, I was then vilified for centering myself in the discussion. All I was trying to do was state that something really great came from it. All this to say, I wonder how we can provide opportunities for Americans to immerse themselves in another culture, to understand the church is bigger than we think it is, and to open our eyes to what is going on in the world 
in a way that honors the other instead of us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And um, as you were reading it, I had several several thoughts. One was uh, a buddy of mine way back called Missions Trips, at least the way we were talking about them, the short term. Yeah. He said they're existential drugs for rich people. I like that. And because they provide a <laughs> dopamine hit for, you know, going and doing... Um, uh, things that are good, but really don't involve the local people other than us coming in to the yeah. kind of to the rescue. Um, but I love the idea that even in because I, I mean, man, this is this is true of me, and this is true of so many of us that even in the midst of of culture, um, evangelical culture that may have been missing the mark, shall we say. Uh, of course, God can bring good things out of that. Uh, but if we're going to critically reflect on the nature of those sorts of trips, it is more accurate to say for a lot of us, it was for us, not for them. Yeah. And the lie was saying it was for them. Um, and somehow for framing a, a dynamic of wealth and power that, that just isn't at all what Paul envisioned. Um, if the question is, how do we immerse people in... Uh, cultures. Um, I think there are loads of great ways to do that uh, with, with apart from churches, whether it's teaching English as a second language, whether it's um, practicing medicine law, um, you know, in an area. I mean, we've got a crew that uh, goes to Honduras and performs heart surgeries for free. Whoa. Now, okay. Now then they're not there saving, you know, proclaiming the gospel and they're not there for themselves because it's exhausting work. But like the guy who did um, a, a, a heart procedure that I just had, I did a 26 of them in a week. What? In Honduras. This yeah, is free. through, where is this? Who's free, this, this is through a, a guy at our, our little uh, community in Tennessee. Wow. And um, literally saving hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and and I think there are great examples of that. But again, the the dynamic that we're trying to foster is long term, yeah. reciprocal, mutually beneficial, meaning learning from each other, relationships that um, are are with no strings attached. Yeah. And if if overseas trips can facilitate that, then God bless them. Yeah. Um, but I think so many of the dynamics as currently conceived in our very narrow imaginations don't allow for that. But that's not to say, like so many of us, I mean, you know, we will point gladly point out errors in the church, but it was the church that brought us here, however it is that we right. got here. So absolutely, that is not to negate at all the great experiences that people have on this. Yeah. It's just at what cost? Yeah, in the greater in the greater scheme. Anything you want to add on that? Just be careful with just be careful with Twitter because it's it only exists to vilify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a whole other thing. Absolutely. All right, number two. Number two. All right, <clears throat> dear Mike and Tim. Hi, Seth. Again, this is in reply to your reply via the podcast to my question about short term missions. We're getting real like Russian packing doll here. 
Um, let's see. To stretch this out. Okay. Tim said something like, missions trips are generally are generally for the benefit of the kids on the trip and are rarely and rarely are they for the community that they are visiting. And then there are other ways to do discipleship that are not at the disadvantage of those we are trying to reach. I've actually found these to be fairly true, particularly as I interact with long-term missionaries on the field and the burden of receiving, hosting, and running interference for these teams. <laughs> I would add, however, that, it, um, that in my experience, there is a big correlation between those who have been exposed to short-term opportunities and those who end up coming back long-term. So mm. I'm not ready to throw out the missionary baby with the baptismal water. I agree that we need to do some work rethinking short-term opportunities and how they are positioned to be a blessing and not a burden to either their expatriate hosts or the indigenous communities they have come to learn about and serve. I think I'm feeling a bit of a rub as we talk about what is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and it's a message about God's love and redemption for every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. I'm fearful as we go down this road that we will be losing something important and replace the proclamation of the good news with uh, simply with demonstration. Hmm. And I think the reorientation of image bearing and God's kingship is orienting the church to dwell in the land and do good, as the many illustrations you cited are doing. We need more of that and not less. And <clears throat> I can't help but think of the gospel as a message, at least an invitation to come play soccer. Paul demonstrated this in Athens, as you mentioned. He didn't say, men of Athens, I'm going to hang out and make sure we bake cookies and help you fix your fridge when it's broken. He went straight to the message that there is one God and this is the one you should be worshiping. I think of Philip, who was not a church planter or an apostle. He was part of the operations team for an early church, making sure everyone had enough to eat. When the persecution of the church scattered believers, Philip went in the spirit of Matthew 28 and Acts 1.8. And said, and he had an amazing ministry of good deeds, healings, etc., and proclamation, and he shared the good news of Jesus to the Ethiopian church. And perhaps that's how the gospel first came to the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. He was passing through, not dwelling in the land, but he was obedient to the Spirit and eager and ready to have an answer. As I think about this conversation on missions, I naturally have to consider evangelism, and that brings me back to what is the gospel. I am so trained in the model of substitutionary atonement that I am still scripturally committed to that concept. It is good news. Are you kidding? God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That subdued, uh, oh, that substitutionary atonement is friggin' amazing good news. And there is also the good news of the kingdom, the good news of honor restored, the good news that oppressive spiritual forces are being subdued, and the good news of the upside-down kingdom values being lived out through the body of Christ. I'm sure I'm just scratching the surface. Uh, I think the challenge in all evangelistic conversation, and particularly international or cross-cultural contexts, is when we present the gospel as one-size-fits-all remedy to all of mankind's problems. We end up like the father in, in a big fat Greek wedding who is convinced that Windex solves everything. And at Tim's point, we do harm when we don't stop to listen and learn for some time before we enter into redemptive conversations that actually scratch where people are itching. I've always thought of the gospel as a message. As I unpack this more, I realize that it is messages, bunches of messages, and it's on the church and on the believer 
to be attentive to the Holy Spirit and to employ good old-fashioned empathetic engagement to discern that the need of the audience is, what the need of the audience is, and how the gospel interacts with that need. Mm. Lots, lots in there, bunches. Yeah, this is um, from uh, an uh, old friend of mine who is involved with a uh, student, I, th- I think he's still involved with the student organization, and absolutely, I mean, very, very thoughtful, and we could take the rest of the episode to engage with the multiple points. Um, my first response is, I don't think many people are that thoughtful about this, and yeah. so we're trying to, we're trying to raise the level of thoughtfulness and awareness uh, of the dynamics around this, so kudos to have to be pushed into spaces where you have to think in these sorts of ways. That my, my second thought around Paul's methods when he mentions Acts 17, Paul proclaimed the gospel in circumstances where proclamation was welcome and typical. Yeah. Um, the, even as he planted churches in Corinth, I mean, the, 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 the rhetoric and the... Um, the speakers that would engage in ideas in the public sphere was completely different than um, often what we end up doing today. Um, and so I think there are places where, where proclamation is absolutely, uh, absolutely important. But um, I don't think in a, um, in a situation like Paul encountered where there are... Um, um, uh, the message of, of Christianity was new. We're in a cultural setting where the message of Christianity has been so malformed and the witness of the church so besmirched that there, there are levels of work we have to do before we ever get to proclamation. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what is striking me about this is that, yes, I think, of course, of course, I have no doubt and have engaged in Proclamation, that's what I do every Sunday. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I, evangelism to me, um, I just don't think of it as sharing the gospel anymore, unless by the gospel you mean right. the, the remade image of true humanity. And then um, I'm sharing that all the time, whether it's in word or just in how I conduct my life. Yeah. And so, again, I think the definitions are just too narrow here. Regarding substitutionary atonement, there is no doubt that substitutionary language is used. My objection is that it's almost exclusively used in the evangelical subculture when it is one picture of many, as our uh, dear emailer acknowledges. And I think there are better ways to frame the story because Jesus, as far as I know, there's only one instance of him using substitutionary atonement language, and that's in Mark when he talks about giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't more substitution language out there. Um, in fact, in a couple of episodes, we're going to look at a, a very classical substitution um, text, Romans 3, and we're going to see that it, it's not quite as substitutionary as maybe we thought it is. And so um, I totally grant that there is part of the substitution story that is absolutely true and biblical. I just think it's it's placed in a larger story. And when it's placed in the larger story, you get different conclusions from it. Yeah. 
So, man, all valid points. And I do think there are ways to do short-term trips, like we just mentioned, that can be really helpful. Absolutely. And life-changing for the people involved. Um, So we're not ruling all of that out. It's just... I haven't encountered many. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not ruling anything out. I realize I'm just one person sitting in a chair somewhere. But the the idea that I, I just think that we need to have this always comes back discernment on everything that we do, and like a little bit of creativity. And it's not just standing on a street corner proclaiming things anymore. Like you just said, like the witness of the church has been tarnished and the more interconnected we become, the more so that happens as the, you know, and it is just the bad examples that get the most publication, but um, that's a, that's a reality. Mm-hmm. And so everything that you proclaim comes with all that stuff. So you have to, we just have to be a little more creative and lose a little bit more discernment with how we interact and live with people and seek people out. And I think that's a good thing. I think yeah, the way absolutely. that God decided to come to w- come here was creative. <laughs> and I think that took discernment too to say that this was the best route to handle what you know what humanity was up to. Also, the like in English in the English classroom <clears throat> on the first day of class we always write or I always write the two words so what on the on the board. And there the task is that everything that you ever write in that class you have to ask so what? Like what's the point? Why am I saying this? Why am I arguing this? What is the purpose of my statement or my claim in my paper? And I think the the church could do well to also just say, so what? Like, why am I doing this? What is the reason or the impetus behind this choice that we're making or this direction that we're going in? Is it about us? Is it about somebody else? And when you see that through, is it, you know, what is the fruit or what is the desired fruit? Rather than just being like, hey, Every year we do this Mexico trip, so let's just keep doing that because it's the our lineage or it's our you know routine or whatever mm-hmm. that we do. And ask like, is this really helpful anymore, or is this what? Why do we do this? Mm-hmm. What is the so what of this experience? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if the answer is just that the kids have a good time, maybe that's not the best <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. So I I think just the restructuring this whole the whole point of this is just to challenge preconceived thinking to open up imaginative horizons that um, that we can use to address cultural need. The other thing, the other thing, and, and this one, um, dear emailer, I mean, I, I, this is so half-baked, but um, I, the, the, the I have the truth and other people need it thing. Totally. I, I'm still working out how to do that in a some sort of... Because what I see Paul doing is he takes the lowest social status, wherever he is. He works in community. He, um, and through community, always. He's planning churches. Um, no doubt he's proclaiming, but he's proclaiming in, um, in the synagogue where, you know, um, similar to maybe going to, uh, uh, you know, being invited to a Ted talk or something and having the opportunity to share something there. Yeah. Um, 
And so I just don't see a one-to-one correspondence between Paul's mode and me going out and, quote, sharing my faith using the substitutionary atonement model with me as the, the possessor of truth and them in need. But I, but I get where that comes from because I do think absolutely that Jesus, following Jesus is the way to go. No, I mean, no question, the best way to be human. I think there's, um, I mean, I, I fully worship him as God in flesh and acknowledge, I mean, all the creed stuff, but it's how do I work that out in a culture that's already so suspicious of the power games that we've used to proclaim Jesus. Totally. Um, I don't know. I just think there's work in my heart. Um, and so so part of part of my new reality is is building and investing in a community that um, proclaims the good news in its communal life. Because I certainly see warrant for that all over the place. Um but I don't know. I don't know. I'm just still figuring out the, you know, it is, because I, I don't see a ton. In Acts, I see all sorts of church building and kingdom announcing. But when I look at Paul, um, I don't know. I, I, I see lots of church building and kingdom announcing, but different. And yeah. uh, um, I see him assuming lower social status in order to proclaim instead of higher social status, you know? Yeah. And there's something in me that when I get into the mode of, I have something you need, uh, man, that's super dangerous. Now, if I, if I know how to do heart surgery and I'm doing it for free, I mean, boy. And I guess the pushback could be, well, isn't that what you're doing spiritually? Aren't you doing spiritual heart surgery, you know, or whatever? And um and so, so I'm not, I haven't worked all of that out yet, but I'm just, um, I'm, I'm captured by the communal, the, the responsibility of the community to witness to the reality of Jesus instead of just me alone um, sharing my faith. Yeah. Well, when you pull the thread on the spiritual heart surgery and what that actually entails or means, and then is that what's happening? Like, what is the, if you want to play that metaphor out, what are all the implications involved in that? But it's stuff yep. that's like the church is like kind of, how do I say this nicely? The, the way the church tries to emulate Paul, like without any nuance, just seems to be where so much to the trouble comes from. Like, it's just what it, it, I'm sure Paul was using a lot of discernment. And plus it was like the beginning of all of this we're so much further down the road now that it takes a little bit of creativity or discernment to say, how do we best reach or how do, how is this message best delivered in a way mm. in which hearts and minds will hear it or see it. And with all the interconnectedness and all of that bad tarnished message that's happened, like I don't think it's standing on the street corner proclaiming or, or yeah, whatever. See, I, 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 and, and I haven't worked this out either. So be as my, as my friend says, love me through this. But um, I don't. I don't know that I see the gospel as a message, right? As much as I see it as a reality to point to, yeah, um, and to witness towards. So my goal isn't to get someone to pray a prayer. My goal is to is to point out the reality that already surrounds them. Um, 
And, and so I, I think that just positions it differently. You know what I mean? And speaking of positions differently, young man, do you have something you want to say? <laughs> you want to say hi to everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Good morning, son. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Tim Stevart. Good morning, Seth. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you asking. <laughs> nice, dude. Look at your conversational skills, man. <laughs> You're such a stud. Oh. What did you do this weekend? Um, Columbus, Ohio. Went to Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, who did you see? Oh, wow. Mr. Evans and Nate. Mr. Evans and Nate. Yeah, two of your favorite people, huh? Yeah. Yeah. A, a big shout out to Tim. Big shout out to Tim. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad. And you too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right. What are big you going to say? Big shout out to Seth. Um, Tim. What? <laughs> Thank you, son. There he is. So those are just things I, I wrestle with and, uh, as you say, kind of pull threads on. Um, any last comments about that? No. Yeah, this is such wonderful, thoughtful. I mean, let's keep talking about it. I think this is, um, this shouldn't be like swallowed whole. I mean, no. the goal of our podcast isn't that you agree with the things that we're saying. Um, we we just have the enviable privilege of learning a lot and then working some of that out together in a in a public community, and so. You know, I'm I'm just delighted to continually, I mean, follow Jesus with every fiber of my being, and at the same time, excavate the um, the culture in which I found Him. Yeah. Um, the finding Him doesn't mean that the culture was okay, as all of our missionaries will attest. Yeah. Um, but it's the question of how do I live faithfully. And I, I just think in um, American a lot of American culture is church culture. Yeah. And um, I think we have to be suspicious. So yeah. that's, that's the goal. And you know, when I think about like Jacob wrestling with the angel or wrestling with God or whatever, I wonder sometimes because I do feel like I'm in a constant wrestling match with what it is that Jesus may be trying to do or has said. And not that. I know that those are not the same situations, but just metaphorically, as I think about it, I am constantly wrestling against trying to figure out what it is that, you know, like we get lots of emails, like, I don't know what to do about church. I can't find a church. Should I be going to church? What's the point of Sunday morning? Right. I don't know the answer to that question, but I am also myself wrestling with that and what is real and what isn't real. And Mm-hmm. When I think about this kind of stuff, the missions trips, I'm like, how much of this did we invent and how much of this is what we were, like, uh, the vocation that we were called to? And I don't mm-hmm. know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Like, these are these these kind of um, conversations are fun because they were not intended. It's like some offhand remark that turns into, like, three or four episodes of conversation. Yeah. And we've had a few of those where people are like, oh, yeah, let's keep pl- let's keep picking at that a little bit we more. I'd like that. to hear more. And it's it's a fun, it's very fun. So um, let's get to our sort of main topic today. 
just as a reminder, <laughs> we're talking over some of the big religious words in Paul's writings um, that are associated with the gospel and um, faith works, grace, um, and uh, saved. saved. Yeah. And um, before we got into um, before we got into the specific words, we did a podcast several episodes ago just on on the message of Jesus, the kingdom is near, and what that meant to the hearers. And it was, uh, and it already begins to unravel kind of the classic story, um, because the point we've been making is you take those four words and you place them in the traditional story and you you get them to mean one thing if you place them in the kingdom story they they take on different nuance and connotation and so we've been looking at the word saved and um we have have spent all kinds of time on on that word as it pertains to image and restoration of image which is restoration of vocation humanity and so on um, and part of the saved conversation is also what, are, what, what is it that we're saved from? Yeah. Um, and over the course of the seven years of the podcast, we've talked about judgment and hell and wrath and all those sorts of things. Um, but I want to kind of come at that a little differently. So I want to do two episodes on what we're saved from. And so at some point, and I know this is so heavy and so thick and not the normal sort of conversational podcast. But um, I don't know, I think there's some stuff here that helps reconfigure some other stuff. Cool. And so we're going to take two episodes to talk about what we're saved from. Uh, I think the the words that we'll get to, you know, faith and law and grace will be shorter. But this one's, you know, this one's kind of the granddaddy of them all, as they say. And so um, when we talk about saved from, there are two stories we have to tell. One is much longer than the other. We have to tell a story of space, and we have to tell a story of time. And um, in order to make sense of, I think, what the Bible teaches ar around what it is that we're saved from. So this <laughs> episode is going to be the first part of the story of space. Okay. The next episode is the second part of the story of space, plus the shorter story of time okay. and conclusions. All right. Now, the amount of oversimplifying that is being done here <laughs> is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I'm, I'm, I totally understand there are pushbacks to everything. And you can't footnote in... Um, in uh, podcasts. So I'll commend to you, if you're doing any work in uh, the Old Testament, I can commend to you John Walton, who has written any number of books about understanding the Old Testament, particularly Genesis 1, uh, even the Torah in the ancient context. I commend to you Gregory Beale, who's written a couple of books on what Eden is and was and, and how it is kind of configured throughout the tabernacle temple story and the Jesus story. I would commend to you Christopher Wright, um, who is a, a, a John. He took over the John Stotts organization, and is just an incredible writer. I would also uh, commend to you John Salehammer, who wrote a book called Pentateuch's Narrative, uh, which is magnificent and thicker than anything you can imagine. Um, 
And so that's where a lot of the Genesis stuff is coming from. The Roman stuff that we're going to get at next week comes from Gombas, not shockingly, <laughs> um, McKnight, N.T. Wright, um, and then, let's see, D Jackson, reading Romans in the Eastern, with Eastern eyes. Um, and then uh, Keys, Matt, and Walsh have all done stuff on Romans. So that's, those are the footnotes um and uh so we're just going to get into it and we'll not distinguish between my thinking and their thinking uh just suffice it to say they're much smarter all of them um so let's talk about the story of space because that's where the the bible begins with space and time but let's just focus on space for a second um when we get to genesis 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth now the phrase in the beginning doesn't mean um, at a certain point in time, like how long ago, it, it's it's the a word that means way back when, whenever it was that God started creating, He began to create about six thousand years ago. Yeah, there's no there's no interest in how far ago that was. It was just hey, way back when, or as Star Wars would say, a long time ago, <laughs> right? A long time ago, God created the sky and the land. That's what the heavens and earth mean in that context. Um, now the earth was formless and empty, or as Everett Fox will translate it, wild and waste. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was over the waters. Now, here we are into ancient cosmology, where um, the... Uh, the waters and the deep stand for the forces of chaos. And we see Yahweh subduing them in the book of Job, in some of the Psalms, uh, a couple of other obscure references to Yahweh subduing the, the, the powers of chaos. But the deep, um, the, the chaos is personified as this sort of primal state where land, sky, and sea were all intermingled. Like there was no differentiating. It was just chaos. There was no order to it. And this is from John Walton. The, 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 what God is doing in Genesis 1 is bringing order to things that were disordered. Another word for disorder is the word chaos. All right? Now, um, chaos is the opposite of cosmos, as our friend Gambus would say. Cosmos is ordered universe, and chaos is disordered universe all right so wild and waste when it are formless and empty when it's using that phrase no there was matter there there obviously were waters there was something there it's just that it was without purpose meaning differentiation hmm. all right so it was unstable unpredictable it was disordered right now this this idea of ordering becomes super important throughout the whole genesis narrative because shockingly what, what is God going to do over the next several verses? Well, he's going to take what was formless and form and yeah. take what was void and fill. So God as cosmic king forms and fills, and he does so the way that the author of Genesis records this for us, he does so in the manner of a king creating a temple or dedicating a temple. And so, and we can go, I mean, there are tons. This is where Beale comes in. There are tons of references in the Genesis 1 through 3 story 
that are showing that that the creation is God's temple, but Eden was the holy of holies of God's temple. So when we get to tabernacle and temple language in the future, holy of holies, outer court, like all of those distinctions were reflected, were reflective of how the universe was created. And so Eden was the, the holy of holies, right? So the, the creation was a cosmic temple. Now, some would say, and this is where Salehammer comes in, that God finishes the work of heaven, heaven and earth in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's not a topic sentence. That's the creation story. And then he argues that the next verses about filling and forming are about the promised land, the preparation of the land, Eden, oh, interesting. rather than the whole earth or the cosmos. Because yeah. remember, earth and land are the same word. So yeah. when we hear earth, we think round sphere. When they heard earth, they thought land. And when they thought land, at least later Israelites would have thought promised land. Yeah. So whatever this is, God is ordering intentionally and intelligently for a purpose that has striking similarities with what ancient temples would do. Yeah. All right? So God is bringing order to chaos, and he does that by forming spheres, right? Sky and land and sea, and by filling those spheres, not literal spheres, but like areas. Yeah, yeah with animals and fish and birds and whatever else. So, so God fills and forms, and then the biggest hint we get that this is a temple and that this is a holy of holies is in chapter 2 when it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all of his work. Now, Rest is a super important word because in ancient temples, rest is a substitute for dwell. All right, so rest means the forces of chaos have been subdued and there is now stability and order and security. The deity can now rest because there is order instead of disorder. Cosmos has overcome chaos. But it means dwell instead of like take a break. Like, Correct. Well, that's that has well. Life. I know. I mean, it, it it talks about ceasing, but but rest has other connotations, and this is from Walton. Yeah. That that a deity would take up residence there and would cease working because the forces of chaos have been dispelled. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you've got order and chaos. You have these competing forces. Right? And God subdues the wild and the waste and brings about a cosmic temple and a holy of holies in which he rests. Yeah. Okay. Right? So this is all presenting God as king. Yeah. This is, the, this is what kings do. So it's not said, but it's, you would have read it this way. All right? Because temples in the ancient Near East weren't designed primarily as places of worship. They were designed for the gods. It wasn't for the humans. Right. Yeah. It was for the gods as, as to take up residence. Um, and the as we'll explore, the any earthly temple is always a picture of what is going on in the heavens. Um, and so there are always in the ancient Near East, there are always correspondences between 
the temple and the universe and the images and the God. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, we don't have to get into more of that except just to, I, I'm just drawing attention to all these threads that Romans is going to pick up later. So again, you're saying it's important to understand the Old Testament. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. So, um, so God rests in the temple. And then before he rests, we jump back into chapter one. And these are verses that are very familiar to us because we spend, this is like, this is the, the, the big deal. In verse 26 of chapter one, let us make humanity in our image and our likeness so that they may rule. Now we've talked about image and likeness are kingly and priestly words. Right. Images dwelt in temples um, and represented the rule of and presence of the sovereign over that area, but also mediated in almost a priestly fashion um, the, the, the land, the order back to the God. Yeah. And so, um, so one of the things that happens is that God created humanity in his own image and the image of God He created them, male and female who created them again. And the plurals here are so important because God introduces us to an us. Um, some think that is a reference to God's own nature. I think it's a reference to heavenly counsel, a la Michael Heiser. Um, uh, whatever. But the idea is the plurality <laughs> <Whatever>. of God <laughs> is represented in the plurality of the image. Yeah. And, uh, and then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase, fill the earth. So here, and this is from Beale, they were to expand the borders of Eden so that the whole earth was to be the holy of holies. That's why Israel will be called uh, initially a nation of priests, hmm. right? To, to mediate God to the nations. And it's, it's a striking blow, this from Sailhammer, when um, instead of a nation of priests, Israel refuses its priestly vocation. And so the Levites and the descendants of Aaron are chosen as priests to Israel, which yeah. was a bummer. Now, that's off topic, all right? I mean, this is there's so much goodness and nuance. Um, but the image in the ancient Near East did not just, it, it didn't, it didn't represent the deity as a symbol, but it, it, it almost was a manifestation of its presence. The image was proof that the God was here and had won and had sovereignty over this region. It was, the deity isn't the image, right? And the image is not the deity. The deity is the reality to which the image points. Yes, okay. All right? Now, when we get to Genesis 2, we, so we've met our kingly vocation, right? We are to rule. Right. And we're to rule as images, which means we're to take up the way that Yahweh ruled, or Elohim, at least in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're to take up that same vocation. And that's why we get a Sabbath cycle later in the commandments, right? So chapter because, 1 is our kingly vocation. Yes. Image is framed in kingly terms, primarily, yeah. because we are to rule. Yeah. Um, the animal kingdom is under us for the flourishing of creation. Now, here we begin to meet um, our priestly rule, right? In Genesis 2.15, when it says, The Lord God took the man, the undifferentiated male, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, we've talked already about how those are worship words. Those are priestly words, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And so there is a, a royal vocation and a priestly vocation that constitutes image bearing. And it is hot cakes time. Absolutely, buddy. Hot cakes time. It's hot cakes time, Tim Stafford. It's hot cakes time. Um, hot cakes and hot cakes. Yep. So here we meet our priestly vocation, and we talked about that already. Um, and as we'll learn, the the New Testament writers, well, even now nah, that, that's that's no, um, even the prophets, um, this mode of life, real authentic image bearing in our kingly and priestly function, that's the image of God, right? That's glory and honor according to the psalmist. That whole mode of life is called worship. Okay. And the result of that mode of life is called life. Okay. All right? Yeah. Now let me keep going. Because this beauty lasts all of two chapters. Um, and then we get to chapter three, where it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree... Well, no, no, no. It's literally in chapter two, verse 16, right after the, pre, the vocation, the one no is given, right? The Lord God's commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree of the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Yeah. So automatically you have an image that disobedience is what? An option. Well, not only an option, but what's the result? Oh, death, yes. Correct. So now we're jumping to chapter three. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and they ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. And so they sewed a fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, this is a failure of both the kingly part and the priestly part of their vocation. Okay. Right? They were, they were to worship and serve Yahweh, and yet now they worship and serve the snake. They were to protect the garden, um, which is one of what one of those words means. Uh, and they allowed an agent of chaos and disorder in. Totally. And then instead of ruling over the creature, which is what the order was, they now listen to the wisdom of the creature and the order that Yahweh had created in chapter one is now inverted. Hmm. So rather than the image bearers ruling over creation, they're now ruled by it. And they're no longer imaging the character of Yahweh, they're imaging the character of the serpent. So in cosmic terms, chaos has now been set loose in God's good world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The The idea, I know you talked about this in a previous episode, of the serpent being a spiritual entity, which they are not necessarily meant to rule over, but it being in an animal form, right? that offers a lot of really interesting implications to their position with that whole dynamic right there yes like the, the it taking the form of something they were meant to rule over and to yes not allow in in the but it being chaos but in the form of an animal that's kind of interesting it, well that's idolatry yeah right something that comes in the form of something that we look at as yeah acceptable okay. but turns out to be backed by powers and principalities that then enslave us into the very thing we were looking to for wisdom and salvation. Yeah, I never uh, thought about it through that lens before. Now, um, <laughs> so they made coverings for themselves 
And then, um, and, and so there's this great, as we said, there's this great exchange, right? That's a failure of both priest and king. And it, it then, it then does something cosmically. Um, it, chaos has been reintroduced. God had banished chaos and had rested. The images were to expand order and chaos has been led into the very heart of God's temple. Yeah, okay. All right? Now, notice how chaos is spoken of. And we're just going to look at one example, but there are a couple of others that we could. This one is from chapter 4. So God banishes them from the garden. And um, we meet Cain and Abel. Both you know, give offerings to the Lord, but only one is accepted. Cain's is rejected, and Cain is very angry. Yeah. Yahweh comes to Cain and says, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, sin is, is presented here as having desires. Yes. And, and crouching. Now, again, it could just be, yeah, we're anthropomorphizing here. Or if you're on the kind of apocalyptic train of um, Gombus and Beverly Gaventa and others, like this is, oh my goodness, this is, this is the first hint we get that sin isn't just some flippant trip over an arbitrary standard of God, but it's something bigger than that. Okay. All right. Either way, it has some, it seems to have some form of agency that. Well, it's just, that's, it just, it's interesting because totally. Paul will speak of sin in very similar ways. Right. Okay. So all we're doing right now is we're, we're teasing threads out yeah. from the narrative that we're, we're going to find packaged together in Romans. All right? Yeah. So there, there, there will be a lot left dangling. Um, and that's why it'll be good to listen to all these episodes back to back. Because, you know, um, who else? What else are you going to do with four or five hours? Of course. Everybody going on a road trip. Um, then we get into chapter six. Seth is tickling my feet. Thank you, Seth. <laughs> When then we get into chapter six, and we've spent time on this when we talked about you know the cosmic being sort of thing. Yes. When human beings began to increase on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, which we know are spiritual beings, right? Saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. <laughs> Seth Thomas. No. Um, then the Lord said, "My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal; their days will be 120 years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made them and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, what's the regret here? What are they imaging? <laughs> There's just right. so much packed into that little paragraph. Right. Now, wild. now, first of all, we've done episodes on this, so we're not totally, we're not going to yeah. do all of the all of the yeah. stuff. But this this is narrating 
a um, a cosmic chaos is introduced into the cosmic realm too. Okay. And so that the 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 fall of humanity and the fall of spiritual beings are mirrors of each other. And again, yeah. it's totally totally consistent with how the ancients saw the world. Yeah. What was happening on earth represented what was happening in the heavens. Yeah. So here we have another inversion, another exchange. Yeah. And um and as a result, Human beings don't image the character of God at all. Yeah. They're filled with it. I mean, that's that this is the like one of the saddest places in all of the scriptures that the image bearers aren't images at all. They've been totally and completely and finally corrupted. And there's an emotional response from Yahweh Absol- within that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But not all is lost. There yeah. is one person and this is later in chapter six. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. Now, what does that mean? Righteous here means that he imaged God. He imaged the character of Yahweh still. Okay, righteous isn't like he scored 100 on like the, the 10 commandments test. And so Noah kind of comes to us as, oh, this is someone who's imaging God. God is righteous. Noah is righteous, right? We see, yeah. We'll see the same thing with Abram. Um. And the idea is, okay, even though the, the, the image bearers are totally corrupt and there's this great crossover now between the spiritual realm, uh, which was supposed to have order, and the, the kind of physical realm, which is supposed to have order. Now it's just chaos, chaos and disorder everywhere. Um, there still is somebody through whom God can restore the image. So it's fascinating. The flood story is... God allowing the waters of chaos loose. Right. You know, in Genesis 1, he orders them and separates them, and here he undoes that. So God doesn't, in my mind, he doesn't actively kill. He just, he allows the inevitable consequence of disorder onto the planet and rescues one. Hmm. Now, we can get into the morality of all of that, hallelujah, down the road, but I think that's the story that's, that's being told here. The problem is, as soon as the flood is over and we think, okay, and, and, and Ab- or Noah receives a commission in, in Genesis 9, very much like the one Adam and Eve received in uh, Genesis 1, right? Genesis 9 right, and Genesis yeah. 1, they're, they're very similar commissions if I said that wrongly. Um, and so you, get a, you almost get a refresh. The problem is Noah, there's this weird story about Noah getting uh intoxicated and being seen in his nakedness and one of his sons is cursed because of this yeah um and you're like huh what does that mean but the threads of that story get woven into genesis chapter 11 which is the full low point of the bible like the lowest point is genesis 11 because you realize the flood didn't work and that noah the righteous man even in his righteousness, was not going to image Yahweh well. And so we get something called the Tower of Babel, which is the tower, which becomes Babylon. So it's this, it's this image of all the forces that oppose God. It starts here, yeah. um, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, God says, um, you know, uh, well, well the, the people say, excuse me, come let us build ourselves a city. Who are they imaging? Right. 
themselves, themselves yeah. with a tower that reaches to the heavens. What do they want to be? Well, the, the ziggurats were ancient temples where gods resided, but this was for them. Right. Oh, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What was the commission given to Noah and to Adam to fill the earth? And they refused, right? right? So this is how corrupt, neither in their, their, the image has been so corrupted that neither as kings or priests, they function as images of God. All right, no, that, that is the counter story to Genesis 1 and 2. So the mode of life in Genesis 1 and 2 will be later called worship, and that leads to life. The mode of life in Genesis 3 through 11 is called idolatry, and it leads to death. All right? And we see that very early in the garden. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And then Genesis 3 ends with the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever so he, so god banishes the humans all right which is which is what which is another way of saying what they no longer have access to life right so they are now in so the in in the heavens and on earth there are now two realms a realm of order and a realm of disorder, a realm of cosmic um, rule and sovereignty, and a realm of chaos. And worship, which leads to life, is in a way emulating and leading back towards the, the first. The mode of life is idolatry. imaging Yahweh. Yeah. Which idolatry would, is imaging something other than Yahweh. Which is, and then inhabiting and embodying chaos. Correct. And we, gotcha. and we see the descent, yep. right? It starts with a murder, but now it's an entire civilization. And that makes sense with all the sin cycles and right. different things. from Yeah. Right, 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 right. On a personal and cultural level. Exactly. Exactly. Now, um, we're doing <laughs> some super heavy theology. And I know this is not make always for great podcast listening. So thank you. We'll do interviews, you know, down the road and have witty banter. Um, <laughs> but if we're, if we're trying to picture how it is, what is the kingdom of God rescue us from? We're starting yeah. to get the faintest images of chaos, idolatry, disorder, um, imaging something within creation, right? Rather than representing the character of Yahweh. And then you see that with, because I, th I think people get caught up on those th three different instances with God. One saying, hey, we can't let man get his hand on this because mm -hmm. that's a big threat. But then when you see what happens when, when we're left to our own devices, but then with that much power, right? like you can see what the implication is there for what the, like, hey, no, let's, this can't happen. They're already spinning out. Yeah, and then, so yeah, so I think that's really interesting because it it doesn't seem like it's a necessarily like a, something that God's afraid of, which I think I've heard people kind of wrestle yeah. with. You know, no, what I mean? not no. It becomes. I mean, it'd be like it'd be like that. saying it'd be like saying, um, uh, boy, humanity really shouldn't get nuclear power. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, so we're going to banish them so they never get nuclear power. Because if they got it, I wonder what they'd do with it. And we live in a world where we did. Yep. Right? Totally. So all that was good is now filtered through the corrupt image. And it becomes, it becomes um, enslaving to us. Yep, totally. Um, and so, and then, and then, the, in the ultimate irony, we blame God for this state of affairs. Yeah, that this was totally, God's yep. will for us. Yeah, that's what I was trying to clarify some of that too, because it's when you wrestle with the problem of evil, which I feel like is every every doubt and question when you follow it all the way down. That's always the end result. Right. It's just like why and how was this the best? Right. Model yep. or whatever, and yep. It's interesting because I still wrestle with like the other two instances there with God of being like mournful, like I should not have done, I should never have created these guys. Like this was, you right. get it. Like, what does that mean? Was that a mistake? Right. And then again with F with Noah, where it's just like, ah, oh, I did a huge reset and still this is out of whack. So is God on a path of learning within that and, and or, or what, or, you know what I mean? There's just so yeah. many other little ornaments on the tree that yeah provoke so many questions yeah absolutely and it gets worse because <laughs> now um we've tried we've tried re-imaging the image bearers right that didn't work <laughs> so so now we're we're in a world where the human beings are corrupt and not imaging the character of Yahweh. And as a result, creation itself is fallen and suffers, according to Paul in Romans 8. And, um, and, the, and so the humans have two problems, all right? Uh, the first problem is that they are no longer fully human. They've ceased imaging their creator. All right. And as a result, the second problem is that they're enslaved to cosmic forces. Yep. Um, two of which are sin and death. Yeah. All right? So those are the two problems. Now, when we get to Romans, justification language is going to refer to God rectifying that state of affairs, not to our just accumulating righteous points because we're in Jesus. Right. All right? So that's that full thread rather than just like the yep. singular, but you look at that long. Yeah. The full thread when, when we get to that Romans three text right. is that God set forth Jesus as new creation space where right. human beings could be transformed back. Which you've illustrated as a small yes. little globe within a larger Correct. messy pollution. Correct. A space of clean air within a big bubble of pollution. Yes. Now, the idea of clean air in a bubble of pollution starts immediately when we start talking about tabernacle and temple language. Right. right? So this is where we're going to end after this. But all of these threads come back around. So um, then God says, build me a tabernacle. Now, what the heck is a tabernacle? Well, it was a, it was a mobile temple. And um, as, as Beale says, Beale has this great line where he says, in the tabernacle, God's dwelling place in Eden is remixed in the context of sin. So the Eden project is still a go. The idea that the, that the, that the, the entire universe is God's temple 
And there is a place where he will dwell among his image bearers. All right? Now that, that, that becomes, remember, this is a story of physical space. So now that right. place becomes focused on a mobile tent with an ark. Right. Right? So, so the Jews understood this is where the heavens and the earth overlapped. Right? right? This is where, where um, Yahweh took up residence among his people. But all of the cultic stuff was designed to remind the people that Yahweh was holy and that the earth as the temple of God was now polluted. Right. That there were consequences for the failure to image God. Right. And so we begin to see um, the idea that sin is pollution. Yeah. That sin hangs over areas where violence has been done. There's a Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 21, where there's instruction if you find a body in a field, the town nearest, um, the elders of that town must come to that empty field and proclaim in the sight of Yahweh their innocence of this person's blood and offer a sacrifice so that the land itself will not be defiled. Well, that's interesting. Right? Or, or you get to like numbers. Here's one. Do not pollute the land where you are. Well, what pollutes it? Bloodshed pollutes the land. An atonement cannot be made for the land on which the blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling among you. So yeah. words like defile, unclean, all of those are pollution words. Yeah, and you get that with God hearing the hearing the blood cry out from the like. Yes, that he... that's the first, exactly right, Timothy. That's the first place you see it. Um, and or you get in like there's this weird passage in Ezra. Um, but now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave us. This is their repentance. Through your servants by the prophets, uh, through your servants, the prophets, when you said to us, God, the land you were entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of the peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Hmm. So sin is pollution, is this image. Um, so again, defile unclean right um these are all like pollution this is pollution language leviticus 18 do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that i'm going to drive out before you became defiled even the land was made unclean so i punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants now again, we're we're personifying all sorts of things here and then anthropomorphizing things. But there's a sense in which sin was conceived of as not individual moral trespass, but the pollution of an entire people who no longer imaged God. You can see it practically too though. Like trees were literally made I mean they they exhale what we inhale. Yes. They are they are in service to us and what we do to them is we destroy and pollute them and so they become pollutants themselves i mean it's like it right you can you can see practically even the way that this plays out in a weird yep way of like our actions towards the environment that we were meant to rule over and be stewards of instead we have caused it to be its own right that's what our rulership has done so exactly right so 
if sin is pollution, then sacrifice, at least one way of sacrifice, uh, one way of sacrifice being conceived is of purity or um, cleansing. Yeah. Right? And so cleansing from pollution. And this image of cleansing and pollution really rests around something called the, the mercy seat. Um, that's how my, my old Bible referred to it. The mercy seat was that area between the cherubim, uh, cherubim, beam, uh, cherubs, the angels, and the Ark of the Covenant. All right. So the, the angels had wings that were folded in towards each other. And between, in that space there, that was called the mercy seat. Now, my NIV now calls it the atonement cover. All right. Now, hold on, Timothy. Let me go. Yeah. So we get to something called the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And notice the language used around the atonement cover or the mercy seat. All right. Uh, This is verse two. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover or the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die for I will appear in a cloud over the atonement cover. So the atonement cover, the mercy seat is exactly where Yahweh dwelt. That was the focal point of the intersection of the realms. All right. How could Yahweh dwell among a polluted land? Well, Yahweh's space was cleansed yearly. Right. And this was the procedure. So verse 13 Aaron is to put incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the mercy seat slash atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle on the front of the atonement cover, the mercy seat. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain to do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, here's the point, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness of the Israelites. And whatever sins there they and whatever sins they have committed, he is to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So what was he so what was he doing when he was putting blood taking the blood of a bull which was for himself and then taking the blood of a goat which was for his country and sprinkling that over the atonement cover, well, that was cleansing that space from the pollution of the Israelites. Hmm. And that is the first instance we get of new creation space. Because remember, this is a story about space. Right. So the tabernacle had the Holy of Holies, the new creation space. Then it had the holy place where only some could come. And then it had kind of the rest of the camp. And then ultimately the rest of the nations. And that sort of, that circle um, pictures the, of what the, the Eden narrative, right? The Eden narrative was, it's a cosmic temple, but there is a holy of holies where God physically dwells. Well, now in miniature, it's this tabernacle where God dwells over consecrated space. See, consecration is another pollution word. Yeah, and then when Jesus dies, don't don't that... don't ruin the punchline, Timothy. All right, I'll I'll take that out. <laughs> no, 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 don't take it out. 
It's fine. But that 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 is part one. Okay. okay, it's a story about space and two modes of life. One mode of life uh, that is called worship and leads to life, and another mode of life that is called idolatry and leads to death. I wish that we had like more when it talks about Noah being this righteous person that I wish we had more of that, what that meant. Because it's, it's so interesting to hear how details like this is exactly what it looked like when they cleansed the space to get it ready for blah, 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 like three drops of this and two, do, 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 do. Mm-hmm. It's like, but then the one guy that God's like, yeah, 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 this is going to be, I think we can, we can fix this with this guy. He's, he's righteous and is more focused on me period. It's like, I want to know more. <laughs> I'd like to yeah. know a little bit more about what that meant. The, yeah. What, what set Noah apart other than just being righteous or what the implications or what that actually detailed. Right, right, right. To my mind, it detailed him imaging. Now how yeah. that worked, but see, it, it isn't until, and again, uh, the, the, so many people will disagree with this. Um, in my tentative view <laughs> it isn't until um the tower of uh, babel that all of creation begins co- co- becomes corrupted again hmm. like the so god cleansed the earth so right? post 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 flood to the tower right was the was the was the hope that noah and his sons would then image gotcha. yahweh they received the new commission They've, they've seen and experienced disorder and chaos. Right. And, um, and, and, uh, and so the cultic system, um, you know, we get the call of Abram, which is consistent with the call of Noah. But now it's all done in the context of sin. Now mm-hmm. we just, we know that the, the humans aren't going to image God well. And, that they're enslaved to the cosmic powers. Like that reset didn't reset. It's still right. happening. And so the Israel project becomes the reintroduction of Eden into the midst of sin and the recommissioning of a nation to carry the image. Yeah, that makes sense. And so um, the Old Testament ends with those questions. Well, Look at what's happened to God's people. Yeah. I mean, the Eden project has failed, surely. Um, they're not images. They're not, they're just like the other nations. That's that's why God levels such harsh accusations. They've profaned my name. Because that is image language. They were to they were to show the goodness of Yahweh to the world and instead right. cause the name of Yahweh to be slandered because they were just as evil, if not more so. Oof. So anyway. That is part one of the story of space, which is part two of what it is to be saved. Okay. <laughs> space part one saved part three, because we did two on Yes, saved. yes. So anyway. It's a long title. Yep. Yeah, exactly right, friends. Well, again, oversimplification happening. Of, again, lots of people would disagree with this, of course. Um, I personally find this, um, again, speaking as somebody who 
you know, is certainly not as smart as the people I'm studying. Um, I personally find this a more faithful retelling of the biblical story than the very small one that conceives of sin as, um, oh, you did this thing today. And, um, and I'm not saying that's not a part of the grand picture, but we've made that the whole thing. And so salvation, if you, yeah. if you look at sin as personal moral transgression, then salvation just becomes sin management, right? Yep. The goal 100%. of salvation is to stop sinning. And we're saying, no, 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 that it's not just the human being sin. It's that the sin is the judgment on the failure of human beings to image God. The sin is yeah. the evidence in the cosmic court that we have failed in the vocation we were given. And so there, there, and, and, and what sin leads to naturally is death. Yeah. It can't help it. Or as we're going to call it wrath, which is simply destruction. Yeah. It speaks so much to the communal aspect of this too, which the sin management does not. Right. Just the huge amount of all this. Yep. So anyway, friends, as always, we're so grateful uh, for your participation in this. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Till next time, friends. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Come here, buddy. Okay. Hurry. No, well, you can wait. You can wait. We can wait for you. That was Seth doing that same prayer over and over. Yep. All right, tell him. Hey, Sefi. Yeah? Tell him to go have a good day. Have a good day, Tim. Yep. Hey, Tim. And there it is. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology podcast thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us